I am glad we're back. This is our fourth week, and after this we have two more to go. So just kind of a short little summer series, nothing too major, uh, like we get into in the fall and uh, springtime. But um, it is an important study. And a big reason I'm doing this is not just because you need to know about the teaching and doctrine of hell. I mean, as Christians, we have that. We know it pretty well for the most part. But my main motivation for doing this was a lot of the um, attacks against certain teachings are kind of coming from within the church. Now, outside the church, you expect that, right? The agnostics and atheists, whatever, the worldly people. But when it comes from within the church, uh, especially, especially within progressive Christianity, what they're doing is they're taking the teachings or the doctrines of Scripture and they're manipulating them. They're not just watering them down. They're really changing them. And they're very subtle. They're very, very smart. And they're very convincing in many ways. I mean, next week we're going to talk about annihilationism. And I can tell you, most of you here are going to want to be an annihilationist because they make it sound so good. It's hard to say, yes, hell is eternal. But that's something we have to stand strong with because that's actually what Scripture teaches. So um, when it when it comes to things like that, we just want to reinforce the biblical teaching because it's so important. And then beyond that, beyond everything else, I pray that it really gives you the, just remind you of how important it is to take every opportunity that the Lord gives you to witness to people, to talk to them, to tell them about Jesus Christ, that the Lord may work in their hearts, uh, because this is a very terrifying but real doctrine. And so this is this is why Jesus came, uh, to forgive our sins and, and to keep keep us from eternal punishment, to make a place for us in, in uh, heaven with him. So let me pray, and we'll get started. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you so much. And Lord, I thank you for uh, everybody who's here this evening, Lord, and for those who could not be here. Uh, just pray, Lord, that it goes very well tonight, that we're just reinforced in the biblical teaching. And we know, Lord, some of the teachings are difficult, not necessarily to comprehend and understand, but to truly believe in, Lord God, uh, because the magnitude of of these teachings um, in your sovereignty and grace, Lord. So please help us with that. Pray it's a good night, a good night of study, and that you would be honored and glorified, and we would be edified, Lord God, and strengthened in our faith. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So... Um, when we start look at your outline, the first point, one, and then A and B, um, what I'm doing there is I just want to, a big misconception, again, even with many in the church, because of whatever kind of teaching, is that, you know, there's a dichotomy between God and the Old Testament. What's the perception of God in the Old Testament? Mean, vengeful, wrathful, fire and brimstone God. And then what's the perception of Jesus? Loving, lion, lamb, you know, sweet, meek and mild Jesus. And so there's a tendency for some people to kind of make that dichotomy. And God is God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. And... We, we need to make sure that we understand that, first of all. God of the Old Testament is loving. God of the Old Testament is just. God, in Scripture, is loving and just. Jesus is God. He is also loving and he's also just. And so what I want to do just in the first part of this, and I'm going to just machine gun this out. We're not going to really slow down here. We're not going to check out any of the Scriptures. You can go back and, and look at those if you have any questions later. But when we get down to the second point, uh, what did Jesus know and believe, and it should say teach about hell as well, um, we will slow down and we'll take a look at Scripture because that's really the, the bulk of what our, our teaching is going to be this evening. So um, just under that first point, um, again, the, the conception is that Jesus is you know, the, the loving one and uh, unbelievers get this. They know that he, those acts of mercy how he ministered to the poor and to the outcasts. Uh, he went in with the tax collectors and sinners while the religious people stayed outside. He healed and he touched the lepers, the people that nobody would touch. Uh, he talked to the undesirables, the woman at the well, you know, Mary Magdalene, all, all of that, that kind of thing. Uh, he provided uh, mercy, sustenance for people going along that way. 
Um, but all of that, as you take the full picture of, of who Christ is, he's God. And that's what the New Testament teaches about him. So I'm going to, like I said, just machine gun this out to you. He is God the Son. He's the divine Son. He's the same in substance, equal in power and in glory with the Father, essence and nature. There's equality between the three members of, of the Godhead, of the triune Godhead. One God, three distinct persons in that. I'm not going to do a study on the Trinity tonight, but that's the, the biblical teaching. Jesus himself said, um, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He has made the Father known. He's, he's come before us. John 8:58. before Abraham was, I am. These are direct statements and claims to divinity. Uh, he claims to be God. Not only that, he proves it. He retains all the divine attributes that the Father possesses. Um, he's fully in his full divinity. He is omnipresent. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. Creator of the universe. He is the exact image of God. That is the exact imprint of God. Preeminent in every way. Colossians 1, John 1, 3, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. There's nothing created that he did not create. He holds all creation together. Colossians 1, 17, Hebrews 1, 7. Uh, he holds all things together. How could we know that Jesus is God? He's able to do the things that God does. You know, besides his claim, besides what scripture teaches about his nature, he actually does things. Um, he will know things that no one else can know except God and do things that nobody else could do except for God. Uh, not only can God know all things, actual and possible, he does. Since he's a creator of the world, he has sovereign authority over every aspect of creation. He alone is uh, omniscient. As God, he's omniscient. Um, some of his omniscience. So when we talk about Jesus being all-knowing, how did he show that? How did he prove that? And as you're thinking about the New Testament, what were some of the ways that Jesus showed that he knew all things? You guys, any? When he was at the well, he knew about That's really good. That's yeah. That's a, that's a good one. Yeah. Not, you know, not only this guy you're with now, but you've had five before this. He knows. Um, he knows what people are thinking and he responds to their inward thoughts. In Matthew, Mark 2, 1 through 12, again, we're not going to look that up. Um, so he's not just guessing at what they're thinking or what they're going to be saying. He sees into their souls, their minds, and their hearts. He knew their thoughts before a word was on their lips. Uh, Luke 6, 8, Jesus knew what they were thinking in their hearts. Again, through the Gospel of John, we see that. This shows us only God possesses that kind of omniscience and ability to know what the heart is thinking before it's spoken. This is his divine ability to know their thoughts. Again, it's not intuition. It's not guessing. Um, again, the miracles themselves, they are signs and wonders. They prove his divinity. What were the main purpose of the miracles that Jesus performed? Why did he? What was the biggest aspect of those miracles that, that teach us about who Jesus is? Any thoughts? To show that he was the Messiah. Yeah, that's right. To show who... To, that was the the gracious, gracious... He didn't have to. There was no way he had to... He, enough, his word is enough. This is who I am. And even if he doesn't say that, it's who he is. But to show that grace, that mercy for our sake. Like even when you raised Lazarus, I'm doing this for your sake so you can see this. If you don't believe in me, believe in the signs. To show he is who he says he was and who he is. And so they're not given that we would just think highly of Jesus. Oh, man, look at that guy. So you have the false kind of prophets and messiahs coming around, showing what they could do, like the magician. Oh, the guy in Acts. Ah, I'm losing my mind. But they, they do these things so people say how wonderful you are and gain a following in that way. It wasn't about that for Jesus at all. Um, he didn't merely do them in a pragmatic way. He didn't just perform miracles to make people better, you know, cast out demons, just pragmatically, okay, you're healed, and that's it, it ends there. That's that's not, that's that's a major benefit behind the miracles, obviously, to be healed, to have demons cast out, to be provided for in that way. But they display his true nature as God the Son, again, the creator of the world. It shows that he alone and God alone is in control over the universe it responds to him in a, in a unique manner. 
Um, I remember when we lived in California, a friend of mine who was in our church, Don Lord, we would go to the beach oftentimes and we'd just think, you know, like you'd see the waves coming and we would just say, you know, Jesus would say, be still, and there would be still. He could stop the, the tide from coming in he, with a word, you know, just that awesome mastery and control over nature. Mark 4.35, again, he calms the wind. Who is this? Even even the winds obey him. He calms the sea. He stills the stills the sea and, and calms the winds. So that gives us a glimpse into his omnipotence um, as God. Um, that the wild sea would hear his authoritative voice as their creator. Psalm 107, Psalm 147. The waves and the wind they do his will. Luke 5 two through nine. That same voice that created the fish calls out the fish to gather in a particular fishing net. Yeah, it's not a trick. It's not lucky. You know, hey, cast your net on this side. Maybe you'll get lucky. That's his omnipotence. That's his, his power. Um, so the miracle hi- miracles highlight Jesus' power and his authority over nature, over the elements of this world. He turned the water into wine, his first miracle that he performed. He fed the multitude with just some loaves and fishes. He walks on water. All of these things display um, and substantiate that Jesus is the divine Son of God. Total authority over the entire created order. His voice is heard and obeyed by nature, by people, by demons, by Satan himself. So he is truly, truly God. It's not this dichotomy between Old Testament and New Testament. When people try to say that, you can't say, no, 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 no. God is God. He is who he is. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Jesus will never say, oh, my father's a tough one. I'm the nice one. You know, come. No. And you know that as you read scripture. So um, under B, he became fully man without losing any of his divinity. Uh, Galatia, uh, Philippians 2, we're told that. He laid aside as it were, but he did not become God. What he did do was add humanity to himself. That's what he actually did. He became fully man without losing any of his divinity. Um, And this is one of the greatest acts of love that God the Father sends his son to become God the man. And he himself agrees to that and puts on humanity, uh, puts on flesh, becomes incarnate. Uh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Galatians 4, 4 and 5. At that right time, God sent forth a son born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who are under the law. So God planned this event from all eternity that the son would enter into the world as the sole and only means of salvation, saving his people from their sins and from the wrath of God. So he was sent to accomplish this for his people. Uh, we can never accomplish this on our own. That shows his great love. And mercy. When did this happen? Uh, we celebrated at Christmas time. That's the incarnation of Christ. It commemorates the Christ being born of a virgin, uh, being fully man. So the Son added to His humanity, added humanity to His divinity. He didn't become less God, and you know, He's fully man, fully God, fully man, fully God. There's a lot of heresies, and another class will talk about this. That kind of separate that so like one is subordinationism like the if you don't know any jehovah's witnesses what do they say about jesus he's he's the first and highest creation archangel michael yeah and that's that's a long story but he's created he's not fully god there was a time when he did not exist uh, according to them, that's subordinate, and he's subordinate to the Father, not equal with him in that way. Um, but there are different heresies in that way. Jesus, uh, his natures, uh, and, his, and his, his human and divine nature are united in one person, the unique man of Christ. That's a hypostatic union. One man, two distinct natures in Christ Jesus. And we know that he is the most loving person who ever lived. Uh, his perfect love casts out fear, saves people. Every action of Christ is loving. Uh, when he's casting out demons, demonstrating his love by restoring people, healing of illnesses, love, care, and concern for his creation. When he dies on the cross, he's proving John 3.16. In Jesus, we see the perfect love of God, God's love fully displayed in the person of Christ. He's perfectly loving, holy, righteous, and just. 
Okay, that lays the foundation. Now we're going to slow it down a little bit. And we're going to talk about what does loving Jesus, this loving Jesus, believe and teach about hell. And Jesus talks more about hell than anybody else in Scripture. And so what we're going to do tonight is look at four different aspects of the reality of hell. And this this is this is that I'm not I'm not uncomfortable with it. It is what it is. It's the truth of God. So we shouldn't be uncomfortable. But it is a, it's a hard teaching. But once you wrap your minds around it, you see all the more the love of Christ for those of us that deserve to be here, and yet He has saved us from that. So. Um, and again, to really motivate us to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ with seriousness and sincerity that he might be pleased to use us in bringing people to himself. So what does this loving Jesus teach us about hell? Four things we're going to look at. That it is punishment, that it's destruction, that it is eternal, and that it's banishment uh, away from the presence of God. So first of all, hell is punishment. When you read in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, even in the um, uh, epistles, we'll consider some of those next week, as right before we look at uh, two bi- uh, a big objection to hell. Um, but we're going to stick with the Gospels for tonight. Um, most of these passages are very, very vivid in their warnings that attempt to warn people of the reality of hell and the dangers of hell. Um, so... We're going to go through scripture tonight. We're just going to do it together if you have your Bibles. Mostly in the Gospel of Matthew. So we'll just be looking there um, and at the teachings of Christ regarding the reality of hell. So Matthew chapter 5. We'll just start there. We're going to be going back and forth. Um, So Matthew 5, you know, this is the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, verse 29, he's talking about lust. And Jesus says this, I'll begin in verse 27. He said, you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away from you. Again, that's hyperbole. The idea behind that is do whatever you need to do not to give into that sin or you know, to be to be lost, overwhelmed by that sin. Whatever it takes, as it were. Uh, And then he goes on and says, For it's better that you lose one of of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. So you see that warning there. And then he goes on, And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So what he's doing there, Jesus himself is driving the point home that no pain on earth, like even if you had to cut your hand off to avoid sin, you know how painful that would be. Again, this is hyperbole. He's not telling you to do that. But but the idea is like to, to do what it takes to avoid that sin. And it's better to have an arm cut off or an eye gouged out than for your body to be suffering in hell, that pain of hell. Uh, that no pain on earth can be likened to that kind of pain that you'll experience. So there is punishment for sure in hell. It's not just going to be, you get all these characters saying that, oh, hell's going to be so cool. I just heard somebody the other day saying that. You know, oh, all our buddies are going to be down there. We're going to be partying. Or they, you know, liken it to the, um, the, who's the cartoonist that has those things of hell? They're really good, the far side guy. They're actually pretty funny, but they're not. <laughs> Their theology is way off, but you know, but they paint this picture of hell that it's kind of a, kind of a cool place. You know, there's some punishment there, but it's not, not so bad. You know, we're going to be there with all our friends. It's not like that at all. It's a place of punishment. You will feel pain. Uh, Matthew chapter eight. Let's turn over. It's right at following the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, Matthew eight, beginning in verse eleven and twelve. So there's the faith of the centurion. He comes. He had a paralyzed um, um, man, servant of his. Um, but then the centurion said, look, I'm not even worthy to come into your house. Don't you love that spirit? I'm not even, you're not worthy to come to my house, right? I know that you could heal him from here. And he, and he does just that. Jesus said, you know, this kind of faith is not even seen 
in those in Israel. And he says, verse 10, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and he said to those following, truly I tell you that no one in Israel I have found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So there's another description of that kind of punishment in hell, that what's happening there, that, that weeping, the gnashing of teeth. So that weeping is that, that vocal response to total punishment and that will come upon those who are sentenced to hell for violating the law, the law of God without repenting. Um, he's infinitely holy, righteous, and just. And, and he's... And he's glorified in his justice. And that's what hell is. It's not He's not reluctant when he has hell. He's not like, oh, I'm sorry I have to do this to you. Christ is glorified in his holiness, righteousness, and justice in hell. This is that the just punishment for the rejection, for the rebellion against him. The gnashing of teeth. We're going to talk more about this next week when we look at one of the big objections. But it's not just physical pain. When do you gnash your teeth sometimes? You can tell me what. When you're angry. When you're angry. Um, that's, a, that's, that's something to really remember. It's not just like, I mean, some, it, it can be both. Like I'm in pain, oh, you know. But a lot, when it, when it talks about the gnashing of teeth, that's a physical reaction to the same complete punishment as one consciously endures perfect divine wrath, yet maintains one's anger towards God. That's a big deal. And we're going to see more about that next week. Remember the elders towards Stephen. They were so angry. They weren't in pain. They were so angry that they gnashed their teeth, we're told in Acts chapter 7, when they came right before they stoned him to death. And I'll say, how dare you? So there's an anger. And so there's still an anger towards God. So don't think, this is a big answer to the, one of our objections, that people um, in, in hell are really repentant, remorseful. Oh, I wish I would have done something different. The indication from Scripture, it's not like that. They're in pain, they're mad, and they're still angry. You know, did you ever punish a very rebellious child? That kid's in pain when you're punishing him, but he's still gnashing his teeth because he's still mad at you too. It's not just the pain; he's still angry. At that point, you have to think of creative ways to do discipline because sometimes that corporal punishment just isn't going to help in that way. It's just going to get him more angry. Uh, but that's kind of the idea. Those in hell are able to feel, and this is what I want you to understand, they're able to feel and endure pain because they are cognizant and they are alive. So it's 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 a very somber, somber reality. Um, in Matthew chapter 13, let's turn there. Again, these are all Jesus' uh, teaching. Matthew 13, this is the parable of... Of the sower, I'm sorry, um, uh, verse 41. Um, this is the parable of the weeds. And this is the idea, the parable of the weeds, for me as an all-millennialist, uh, it, it, it speaks to the end of the age. When, when Christ returns, there's going to be a, a literal, you know, the sheep and the goats, so a weeding out. Okay, Those who believe, those who do not believe. And there are going to be people in the church who are going to be on the left side, right? Not on the right side. That's that's something to understand. But here's here's the, the fate. So uh, verses 41 and 42. <clears throat> the Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of all his kingdom all the... I'm sorry. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. There's that dire warning again. And Jesus is right up front. This is Jesus saying, it's like, look, here's what's going to happen. They're going to gather and they're going to be thrown into that. Um, again, what kind of fire that is not it's the idea and especially in old testament scriptures fire was consummate with judgment judgment is coming down 
Sodom and Gomorrah. Here comes the fire raining down on you in that way. So it really speaks to that kind of judgment. What it's going to be like? Is it going to feel like you're in flames? Not, you know, I don't know. Hopefully we'll never find out. Um, but the, the fiery furnaces where sinners are punished and consumed by holy and righteousness and that purity of God's justice in that way. So um, we have that. We talked about the rich man and Lazarus last time. And that does express a great truth about pain and suffering and the judgment. Remember the nature of that torment that was there. The rich man was in conscious pain. He was alive. He was feeling pain. He's saying, get me out of, he didn't say, get me out. Go, go warn my family. Give me some water. Remember, we talked about him. He wasn't seeking repentance. He wasn't going back to the Lord, but he wanted some relief from his, his condition. So, um, the idea is hell's a place where unrepentant sinners will face God's pure and holy wrath. And it's described in, in some ways as an unquenchable fire. And that's that's there. The point of this imagery is to show God's just and perfect wrath in hell is a painful reality for the wicked. It, it just is. And so, again, this should really speak to our hearts to motivate us to, to go and preach the gospel. It's not something we... I mean, like, if you deny this teaching... And, and I think it's done... The hardest teachings oftentimes... Paul has confusing teachings at times, like with justification, different. Even Peter said Paul's writings are hard. But some of the most emotionally, I guess, teachings that are hard to grasp come from Jesus himself. And Paul is given authority from Christ, so his word is just as much word as Christ's word is. So we're not trying to say, oh, that's Jesus and here's Paul. No, no, the word of God is the word of God. So, but, it, like, this is a perfect example that Jesus speaks most about hell than anybody else. So if you're going to deny hell, you have to say, Jesus, you're wrong. Like Jesus, or that's not what Jesus meant when he taught that. Again, Paul has the same weight as Christ, theologically speaking. But it is, it is significant that it's Jesus Christ himself who's saying this, the Savior himself. There's a lot of weight there. Do you know what I'm saying? Don't mistake, please. I'm not going to. Every word of Scripture is God breathed. It has the same equal authority, but there's a weightiness, as Christ says, as He's teaching this very forthrightly. Um, you can't say I love Jesus, but I hate hell. I don't believe in hell. Can't do that. Um, so, it's punishment. Hell is also destruction. Uh, it's not only a place of punishment. But destruction as well. In other words, this is going to be a big deal. Um, and go to Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. This is really going to come into play next week because this, um, this and the next point are two points where the annihilationists and also the universalists who claim to be Christian um, really, really make a case against this. And you're going to see next week the annihilationists or um, conditional uh, conditional blah um, conditional punishment. The idea that they have is they really play on this destruction. They say once you go to hell, you'll be there for a while, but only insofar as your sins require the sins that you've committed. And that proper amount of punishment. It's almost like a purgatory type of, type of thing. You're in there till your sins are paid for and you could be um, manifestly just, like in, justified, objectively justified. That's Roman Catholic teaching. Um, so the idea is you serve that time and then you're just annihilated out of existence, just like before you were born type of thing. You didn't know anything. You're just out of existence. That's a very attractive teaching. And there are more and more professing Christians that are kind of going over to that. Um, that's why it's important to, to know what we just taught on the punishment, Jesus' teaching on hell, but also the, the, uh, the next point, the eternal nature of hell. That's a big one, too. But, uh, but here it is in Matthew 10, 28. Jesus says this. Um, Jesus, beginning verse 26 of chapter 10, have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, you say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the rooftops. And don't fear those who kill the body, 
but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. That's, you know, that's probably the strongest passage that we'll deal with next week in terms of the annihilationist use. They'll say, see, they destroy both body and soul. The soul is not immortal. Like your soul started as God breathed into you, so it can end too. Right? That's, that's a big argument that they have. But for our purposes and what we believe Scripture teaches, actually, the warnings clear is not to fall into the wrath of God. It's much worse than falling into the worst of the worst situation among people. That's why we want to stay and not deny Christ, you know, not leave him. Whatever man can do to you amounts to nothing what God has prepared for those who loved him. But also, if you do deny him and you prove not to be trusting in him, what awaits you in hell? So that's much worse. So the idea behind the painful destruction for unrepentant sinners is the idea of utter ruin and defeat. You know, just when you feel wrecked, there's just this constant, you know, I'm just being destroyed here. I'm just being destroyed without being annihilated, without being, you know, puffed out of existence, um, ruined, undone. That's really the force behind the word. Um, so I'll go back to Matthew chapter 7 again. And uh, verses 13 and 14. So whoever... Whoever you wish that others would, I'm sorry, so whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And there's that word, and those who enter it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So he talks about that, that wide gate leading to destruction. And the idea behind that is the body and the soul are in complete ruin um I, I, it's like a ship you know like a ship could be destroyed but it's still there like it's it's sunken or it's it's in the ground and it's it's useless it's been destroyed but it's still there it's not annihilated in that way it's not just poof out of existence that's that's an, an army can be destroyed you know but not put out of existence like when there's no consciousness that kind of thing a house could be leveled but there's still, like by a tornado, would you still have something stand? So in that way, that's kind of the imagery of, of the body and soul in complete ruin, destruction, perishing, but never quite dying, suffering that pain in hell. That's really behind it. Now next week, I, we'll get into this a lot more uh, because there's going to be a lot of, um, I'm just telling you, this, this is one of the reasons I want to do this class because it's a very seductive teaching. And there are more and more, um, especially if you go on YouTube, people that otherwise, if you've ever heard of John Stott, if you're a little bit old, you know, he's kind of a John Wenham. These guys are, you wouldn't question their faith in Christ or belief in Christ, but when it comes to this, they're, they're open to, if not agreeing with, annihilationism. And they use this passage especially, that that's going to be destroyed. But then you have to, again, we'll, we'll answer those, and I think sufficiently biblically next time, um, Part of me wishes this would be the teaching of Scripture. That would be easy to teach, kind of that easy thing. But it's just, it it isn't when you take all the Scripture into consideration. So they cherry-pick some of these verses, but they don't take the full teaching. That's what I'm trying to do tonight, and we'll do it in the next couple weeks. Uh, And one of those teachings that counter this, and that annihilationist hate, is that hell is eternal. That's one of the big deals um, that we'll talk about next week, that that hell is said... Go to Matthew chapter 18. Um, um, And verses 1 through 11. Jesus is talking, the disciples are talking about who's the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus is saying, you know, you need to come with a childlike faith. The one who's the servant is the, is, is the one who is great in the kingdom. And then I'll begin in verse 7. He says, woe to those, woe to the world for temptation. Woe to those, I'm sorry, woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it's necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. 
And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands and two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. And there it is. That word means unending, forever, eternal. It's really, really hard to get around and and manipulate that. Um, If your eye causes you to sin, tear it and throw it away, it's better for you to enter life with one eye than two eyes and be thrown into the hell of fire. But when he talks about that eternality of hell, that state of punishment will be eternal. Uh, you can please turn to Matthew 25. And this is at the, the final judgment. And um, and again, even logically speaking, and we'll talk more about this again next week in answering the objection, there's more of a symmetry. You know, like if, if there's eternal life, then it's logical and it figures there will be eternal death as well. You know, that's that's the it's a biblical teaching, it's a logical teaching as well. But again, more of that next week. But here, uh, Matthew 25, this is at the final judgment, and I'll begin in verse 41. He says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels so they're going to be in that place with the devils and his angels that's where they're going and he says it's eternal for i was hungry you gave me no food i was thirsty you gave me no drink i was a stranger you didn't welcome me in naked you didn't clothe me sick and in prison you didn't visit me then they will also answer saying lord when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked sick in prison didn't minister to you he'll answer and say truly i say to you as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And so you see the symmetry. There's the eternal life. It's not asymmetrical. It's symmetrical. And then eternal hell. It, it logically flows that way as well. And again, it's Jesus who teaches this. Um, we'll talk more about the worm next week. So... Um, Mark, we will we'll leave Matthew for a minute. We'll go to, to Mark's Gospel, chapter 9. Mark, chapter 9. Um, verses beginning in verse uh, 38. Uh, um, you know, I'll, I'll just I'll start in verse 42. Again, Whoever causes these one, little ones to believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone hung around his neck and be thrown into the sea. Again, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter crippled in two ends and go to hell in the unquenchable fire. There it is. That's another word, unquenchable. It's not going to be put out. That's another way of saying eternal in that way. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Better you to enter lame than with two feet and be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone who is salted with fire, salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Again, these are big warnings. Christ is saying, make sure you're you're living for me and you're being who you're called to be. Don't just say you're a Christian with your mouth and then live as you want to. And when you, you know, when he's telling us to avoid these sins, these are, these are drastic measures. And that's that's a big deal for us as Christians. We don't want to get drawn into sin. So we're going we're gonna to do what it takes. You know, we've got people that are struggling like with pornography. Whatever it takes, get that computer out of there. Get that phone away from you. That kind of thing. Those radical kind of steps that you take uh, so that you won't fall into that sin. Um, but again, it's it's better to enter the kingdom of heaven in that way than not to be saved and enter into hell with that unquenchable fire. Says where the worm doesn't die. And again, the the um, as a fine kind of tuned argument, I guess the annihilationists will say, well, worms feed on dead things. Well, they also feed on decaying things. And the idea, I think, the picture behind this is on the decaying things. Those in hell are kind of in the process, if you want to put it that way, of dying, but never actually cease to be alive. You know, we, we've seen that. It's that physical torment, conscious pain in that way. 
And, and the idea is like the worm doesn't die. It's just it's continually feeding on this decaying flesh. That's the picture that which more consistent with the teaching of hell rather than annihilationist says, well, see, worms feed on those dying things. They, you know, on the carcasses and things like that. They, they break those down in that way. Um, but when you take the scripture in its entirety, when you're think, speaking to this, it's the idea of this worm feeding on the flesh as it's decaying, but never quite dies. Never, it's always doing it. It doesn't die in that way. It's always being sustained on, in that way. Um, so it's a way for eternity. They feel that unending, unending, unending pain as the worm feeds on that host. There's really no rest, in other words, in hell. That's kind of the idea. It's a brutal picture. It's a brutal picture. It really is. Um, but that's why we have to stand stand strong and not, you know, and, I, and again, part of me, I'm so, it's so, I'm so thankful that it's, it's Christ who's bringing this forth in, in that way. And then one more for tonight. Um, Hell is banishment. It's banishment. It's separation. Um, back to Matthew uh, chapter 7 again. And verses 21 through 20, 23. So banishment is the separation from God's kingdom blessings. Not the presence of God. Like people think that you're going to not be in the presence of God in hell. He's Lord over hell. Hell's not run by Satan. Hell is run by Christ. Hell is run by God. You know, like people say, oh, not, you know, you're, you're going to be under his wrath. It's not like you're going to be under the devil. It's not the devil torturing you in hell. You're bearing the wrath and punishment for your sins from God. He's Lord over hell as well. That's a big deal. Because a lot of people think, well, that's just the place. And then Satan's in charge of you down there. No, that's a mischaracterization. But to be banished, the banishment is from God's blessing. So Matthew 7, 21 through 23, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, went to the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, and he's speaking to the judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, workers of lawlessness. So he says, depart from me. You're banished. You're, you're, you're away. You're separated from me. And so the idea is, um, being separated from his kingdom blessings. And that's that's the real thought behind this idea of, of banishment. Um, one thing is, and you need to know this, as, and here's a good thing if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, our life right now, right now, this is as close to hell as you'll ever be. Do you know that? And that's a good thing to remember. Um, people say hell on earth. No, hell's not on earth. This is... When people say that to you, say, you have no idea. Don't say that. You're still under God's blessing. You still have his common grace. There's so much good for you. But, you know, don't let people say, oh, this, because people will say that. This is hell. Ask people. Ask people what they think about hell. People say, this is hell's on earth, man. This is, you know, and nothing works. Everything's broken. It's a fallen world we live in, but we're still under his common grace. But for believers, and take great joy in this. This is as close to hell as you'll ever get. Because when you die, you're going to be in heaven in the presence of the Lord. And there is um, is wonderful grace, love, no pain, no sorrow, no tears. Um, if you're not a believer, this is as close to heaven as you'll ever get. And that's, that's something we enjoy. Unbelievers enjoy his blessings, his common grace. You go out and you look at the sky and you say, wow, you marvel at that. Now, you might not give God credit if you're an unbeliever, but that's a grace from God. The air that you breathe, the rain that falls on your head, the plants that grow in your garden, everything is common grace blessing. That's nothing. In hell, there's none of that. That's a, that you're, you are separated from his kingdom blessings. Even for unbelievers, he still shows that love for image bearers, as it were, for humanity, by by doing these good things. It says that in Acts as well. He sends the rains in their seasons. He gives you these good things. So um, if somebody says it's as close as hell as you're going to get, you got to tell them you don't know what you're talking about and then try to set them straight um, if you can do that. Those in Christ receive blessings of eternal life. Those in hell are outside such kingdom blessings, so separated or banished from them. 
but they're still under the authority of his wrath. And just one more passage in Matthew 22. Matthew 22. Um, and this is the, the parable of the wedding feast. He's told to go out and gather people. They don't come. Um, then they bring other people in. And verse 11 says, The king came in and he looked at the guests. He saw a man who had no wedding garment. He wasn't covered uh, appropriately, rightly. In other words, he wasn't truly belonging to the Lord. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? He was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness, the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Those in hell will receive no kingdom blessings. They're not going to be part of the wedding feast. They're not going to be part in heaven. And, and the idea when he talks about many are called, if you are chosen, I, my understanding of that and what I hold to that is that that calling of the gospel, and this is, this is what I want to motivate you with this evening, is that call goes to every single person that you have opportunity to give to. And it and and when he says many are called, the call is full. It's free. You offer the kingdom of God. You, if you repent and believe, if you call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. If you confess Christ as King, you will be. Your sins are washed away. If you truly turn to Him, you know this is. We are sinners. Christ came to die for sinners like us. So we give the full message. That outward call of the gospel goes out to everyone, especially armies. That's why we don't get angry with people. They can say whatever they want about us. If we're down at the pride parade or if you're in front of the abortion clinic or you're just at work and people are antagonistic towards you, don't get mad at them. And don't don't just say, okay, uh, yeah, I'm, yeah, all right, yeah, have fun in hell. Don't do that. Take it. Take whatever they they give to you. Be patient with them. Um, that the, in that way, the Lord may may turn bring them to Himself through your witness. You know, even if it's not if you're, if they don't want to hear the gospel, perhaps they'll see Christ in you, even by the way you treat them. So when they're angry with you, you don't get angry with them. That's that's why the stakes are so high. It's not just about you being a good person, and as such, it's about living for Christ that others may see Christ in us and avoid this. So, so that's kind of the idea here. So many are called, and with the, the outward call, the gospel goes to every single person. Few are chosen. That's the inward call. God knows those who belong to Him. God knows who's going to respond in that way. We don't. So we're, you know, we're our our job is to make Christ known at whatever expense it is. Be patient with people all the time. Perhaps God will use use that to turn them away from from destruction in that way because this is what's at stake and this is the reality of this is why i always say when i'm preaching i'll say this isn't a game like christianity people think it's a game to be a girl it's a cute thing to be this is life and death this is eternity man you know that and so we want to do all that we can and, and to be serious in this regard so um again he's the judge over hell he's the lord over hell and just some conclusions, just a few conclusions. We'll wrap up here. Uh, the first one is the only basis for not being sentenced to hell is believing in Jesus Christ as your Savior. That he is who he says he is. He's done what he said he has done. He's, he's made a way for sinners like us. So the same one that speaks about hell in this way is the same one who came to rescue sinners from hell by giving himself, by t- giving himself substituting himself in our place, atoning for sins. So remember that. Um, just a summary. Jesus' Jesus' love did not lead him to reject or minimize hell. You know, so people want to say, I, oh, the God of the Old Testament is the hard one. I love meek and mild Jesus. Jesus never, he, he's not minimizing hell in any way. He's maximizing. He's really putting it out there. Uh, his love required him to teach that hell is real. That's a, that's a big deal. Um, he taught that hell is a place of divine punishment where God dispenses universal justice for all eternity. Punishment will be dispensed by God to those who are fully conscious. It will be eternal separation from God's blessing um, in the process of total destruction. So that's the, that's the biblical picture 
right from Jesus' mouth on the on the doctrine of hell. Now, as we get in, Paul talks. There's there's passages. Nobody speaks more to hell than Christ does, but there are passages we'll begin to look at next week uh, that that speak to this kind of destruction because the apostles taught the same thing um, in in regards to hell as Christ did. But we're not. There's a whole study on that, but we're not going to do that. So what we are going to do next week is we're going to start considering the two big objections. And after what you learned here tonight, you might feel, man, this is really tough and it is hard. And it is one of those teachings that's that's hard to, I don't want to say fully embrace, we fully embrace it, but emotionally it's very difficult um, because of the reality of it. And it should be hard in that way. But what we don't want to do is somehow say, it's not that bad. Because it is that bad. And that's what they try to do. And I, I, as I'm studying this, you could almost be persuaded. You'll see next week when they talk about, look, you serve your time, and then poof, you're just gone out of existence. And that's nice. Like there'll be a time where you just you're not going to be there for all eternity. How long is eternity? Yeah. Um, and then the one after that is, aren't there Bible passages that talk that one day everybody will be saved? You know, every, he wants nobody to perish, but all to come to saving faith. So, yeah, people might go down for a while, but eventually they're not going to be annihilated, but they'll be in heaven. They'll be with God, maybe immediately, but there might be some place. And there's different teachings. But if you go to Mount Lebanon, the Universalist Church, uni, universal, they believe the trees go to heaven, too. But um, but but a universalist church will say that, you know, it doesn't matter what you did in life. God's love overrides all of that. That's how loving God is. And that sounds nice. That's how, that's how loving he is. That it doesn't matter what crimes you committed. Hitler is in heaven right now. You know, that's because eventually he, God's love overrides our sinfulness. Those sound nice in some ways. But... They're not what the Bible teaches. But you're going to be challenged. So that's why we want to have a firm foundation. Any questions or comments? It's tough stuff. All right. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you, Lord. And you are glorified. And we thank you that we can come before your word and take the truth of your word, Lord God, for what it is. We can only do that by your spirit and by your grace and by your mercy. Just as much as we believe in eternity in heaven, that Christ died for sins, that all who believe in him and place their trust in him will be forgiven and will have a place in your kingdom, in your presence, Lord God. We know that the opposite is true as well. For those who do not believe, those who reject, those who continue to harden their hearts against you, Lord God, who, who refuse to submit, who refuse to end the rebellion against you, will be rightly punished, Lord God, for sinning against the holy and mighty God. And Lord, we understand that even in that place, there will still be no real repentance or remorse, but a continuation of the gnashing of the teeth against you, Lord. So we do thank you and praise you for your divine love, divine justice, divine mercy, divine grace. We thank you for this time. And I just pray, Lord, we take these things to heart as we wrestle with these teachings, but to know that they are the word of God, that they are true, they're right before us, and we believe them, we will articulate them, and we'll make them known. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.